Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday Message. Please head over to our website, BethelBrandon.ca, to figure out how we can best serve you. How many enjoy a wedding? A lot of us enjoy a wedding. I kind of have a, a, uh, a love-hate relationship with weddings. And I, I, I enjoy weddings. I hate suits. Maybe that's the best way to put it. For those of you who don't know, that a suit is a big guy's worst enemy. Might be the best way to put it, because in a t-shirt I overheat. Just imagine when you gotta put like a, a suit and a tie and everything is it, and so there's, there's always that uncomfortableness. But if, if, if that was the, the, the biggest of my problems, I enjoy weddings. As a, as a matter of fact, I have performed a number of weddings. I have performed a number of MCs. There have been even times where I have performed the wedding and then had to be the MC. And so sometimes they can be tiring. But I enjoy weddings because there is a unique perspective that you have as a pastor. You have the opportunity to see those doors open in the back and you are standing beside the bridegroom and watching his reaction and and you watch them come up and you see things happen and you see the nervousness and you see uh, all the things which happen. You kind of have a front row view to all of the action and things which happen and, and go on. I must admit as well that I have seen some things which are kind of interesting. I've seen people fainting at the altar. I have seen, uh, I have at one point, even at that little corner there, I have caught an, a candle opera that was lit that was about to fall on the bride's dress. I, I, remember, I remember going to a wedding and performing a wedding, and it was a, a lawn, it was like a backyard wedding, and I got there uh, really 15 minutes before the, the uh, service was started, and there was nothing set up. There was no chair set up. There was nothing set up, and I said right away, this is going to be an interesting one. I remember, I remember at my own wedding, my nephew was the, the ring bearer, and in the middle of the service, his, his brother comes for a visit in the middle of the, uh, in the, middle of the ceremonies. It's kind of interesting. I remember even in my, my brother's wedding, which I was officiating, that the sound and the soundtrack and everything that had happened as far as the service was terrible. It was so bad that the church gave their money back to them. And you know, folks, when the church gives their money back, you know it's got to be bad. Because the the truth of the the matter um, is this, that we all enjoy a good wedding. Everybody does. But everybody remembers a wedding gone wrong even more. Is that not true? We have websites that are dedicated to that very thing. And even, even honeymoons, we kind of see the same thing happening. I was reading the story of a, a couple that were from, from Sweden and they were gonna go on an extended honeymoon after they got married. And so what they did is they flew to Munich and by the time they got to Munich, they closed the airport because it was one of, the, one of Europe's worst um, snowstorms that they had ever seen. And they were able to somehow get out and they were to, to fly to, I believe it was Cairns, Australia. And at Cairns, Australia, they had the worst typhoon 
that they had there in years. And so what happened is they ended up going uh, to another area. I, I forget exactly where it was in Australia. And, and there was intense flooding like they had never seen before. And so I believe that they go up to Perth at that time and they narrowly escaped all the brush fires that were going on. It's a true story. So they fly to uh, New Zealand and they experience a 6.3, what is it? What is 6.3 Richter scale earthquake? Incredible. So they fly to Japan and in Japan they have the worst earthquake they had on record and the threat of a tsunami as well. And they finally, they get to one other place and they get home and they think they had six natural disasters during their honeymoon. That's incredible. And it's at times like that, you look into your spouse's eyes lovingly and you say to them, you know, you're bad luck. (laughs) I'm only kidding. They don't say that. I'm only kidding. One of, the most, one of the most amusing stories I heard is of a, <clears throat> a youth pastor, and, and they had only kind of a limited amount of money, so they were only able to invite friends and, and family to the wedding. And, and knowing youth, they, they kind of bypassed that invitation, and they decided to show up themselves, and they ran out of food at the wedding. It's kind of a, a difficult thing. But that kind of leads me into the story that I want to talk to you about today, about running out at a wedding. So if you have your Bibles with me, turn with me to John chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses. And we're kind of continuing on in this study in the book of John. It says this, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars and uh, the kind that the Jews used for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water did know. And he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, And his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed for a few days. It's an incredible, incredible story. If you haven't heard it before, it was the first miracle that Jesus begins to perform. And it is in the second chapter of the book of John. And so we're trying to take a deeper look. And we've come to the realization that John writes his gospel 
a generation after the original Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he has a goal in mind to talk to this second generation, many of them who were not around when Jesus had resurrected from the dead or known anything about it. And he's trying to prove that he was fully God and fully man. And so there are some interesting things to observe here. Now, if you are new to the Bible and you are new to Bible study, hopefully it will not take you long to realize that God enjoys a party. Did you realize that? Sometimes we forget that truth, that God likes to have a good time, that God likes to celebrate. And we see it here, the second chapter, the third day of his ministry as he has come upon him as the Messiah. This is the first, one of the first things that happens and comes to him. It's kind of crazy when you stop to think about it, that it happens at such a great time. And, and I don't think, honestly, I don't think that we celebrate enough. I know that if there's a fault of mine, although there are many, one of them would be this, that many times I don't take time to enjoy the party, to celebrate the win, as it were. And I believe that as a church, sometimes we do that well. We are so mission-focused that we don't take time to say, thank God for what he has done. Let us enjoy the presence of God together. If you take a look at the New Testament church, they got together all the time. It was kind of like a party atmosphere. The, the people in Jesus' ministry that, that were opposed to Jesus their one complaint was the fact this guy is partying all the time. If you take a look in the book of John, three times uh, during his ministry that we see, he is in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. Take a look at the Old Testament, all the time that there were these celebrations. I don't know if there's ever been a person who has ever stopped going to a church because they are having too much fun. I stopped going there. Why? Well, they're always celebrating something. There's got to be something that's wrong with people who are having too much fun, is there not? Obviously, these people aren't spiritual people. They're just, they're just too busy having too much fun. It's kind of interesting when you, you consider that. And so the ceremonies that happen and the weddings that happen at that particular time are a little bit different than the culture that we would have today. What was happening at that time, a Jewish wedding, was something which was a huge event. And it happened in this place called Cana of Galilee, which was about six kilometers north of Nazareth. You could pretty well see Nazareth from Cana. And, and Cana was called a place, a place of reeds. which was kind of like a lowland, which is kind of funny because Nathaniel was the one who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And, and you're taking a look at Cana, and it's kind of looking like not really the best place at all either. But it is close to Nazareth. And what happened many times at a Jewish wedding was that a Jewish wedding many times during that time would be on a Wednesday and not a Saturday. And that a wedding was actually paid for by the groom's side and not the bride's side. And that a wedding many times could last anywhere from three days to a week. And there's a whole bunch of ceremonies that you can read and talk about. And one of them is the fact that they, they pronounce their vows under this canopy. And, and after the, the, uh, the official says, I do, and, and the, the whole process of the wedding is over, they pick up the bride and the groom and the canopy. 
And they marched them through town, and it was a great time of celebration, followed by all of these festivities and things which happen and, and, and take place. And it's, it's kind of a wonderful scene that we, we are here upon. And we, we realize as well, if you're reading this story and following along, that Jesus' disciples are there. But at this time, Jesus only has five disciples. There's Peter, and there's Andrew, and there's Philip, and there's Bar- Bartholomew uh, as well. Who else? Oh, Nathaniel, of course. Nathaniel as well. And these are the only disciples who are here at this particular time. And so also think the thing that we realize about this wedding is that it was someone which was familiar to Jesus' family. Mary knew the family quite well. As a matter of fact, Mary would probably be the wedding organizer. She is the one that made sure things were put into place. How do we know this? Well, we can tell by the language, and we can tell by the fact that she was among the first people to realize that there was no more wine, or there was not going to be any wine left, that they were running out. And how she was giving directions to those people who were serving the wedding at that particular time. Because something goes wrong. They run out of wine. And you say, so what? You run out of wine. But this was something that was a huge problem in that particular day. It would be a source of huge embarrassment for all that would be going on at that particular time. As a matter of fact, there were legal documents that they had found in archaeology which talked about people who would get sued for something like this. And that's how serious this was. So as I kind of prepare this, this scene for you here, I think the best way for me to describe what was happening and everything which is taking place is I kind of will use the four M's. I want to talk about the moment. I want to talk about Mary, of course. I want to talk about the miracle. And I want to talk about the men, his men, the disciples. I could have said disciples, but when you have three M's in a row, you got to go for the fourth M, right? That would just be wrong not to do that, correct? So let's take a look. Let's take a step back and and look at the moment. What was happening? What was taking place? Let me say this to you. In all of the Gospels, there are 37 miracles which are reported. Now, I'm sure there were probably hundreds more. But there were 37 that were somehow chosen through the Holy Spirit working through these apostles to report. In the book of John, there is only eight. Seven prior to the resurrection. And of these sevens, only one of them is mentioned in any of the other Gospels. And so John, as he is writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit is able to have looked at the other three Gospels and for some reason adds these miracles as a part of it. And you are left to think there must be something significant about the miracles which he chooses to tell us about. Now there are many theologians who have studied the book of John who say this. They said there is something significant about these miracles. As a matter of fact, they don't call them miracles, they call them signs. And if you read the book of John and you read about this, it says this is the first sign that Jesus performed. That there was something that 
that John was trying to describe about the nature of Jesus through the miracles that were being performed at that particular time. Interesting if you stop and consider it. Why would Jesus choose? Folks, maybe you've asked this question. Why would Jesus choose to start off with just turning water into wine at a wedding? There's nothing really particularly important, I guess, about the wedding. There are some people who feel that the wedding that they're talking about was actually John, the author's wedding. The reason they say that is because uh, Mary and John's uh, mother were sisters, so she would have had part in the planning of the ceremony. There's nothing to corroborate this. It's just interesting, interesting things to note. But why would, why would this be the first miracle? Why, what was the significance of it? And if you're talking about the seven signs, this is the sign of conversion. This is what the, the theologians call the sign of, of conversion. Well, it's interesting that it was a personal miracle. It wasn't something that he had with the whole crowd around trying to show and prove anything at all. There was no one who was healed of blindness or lameness. Nobody walked on water. Nobody was raised from the dead. It was personal. And it leads you to believe that sometimes God cares about the small things. And sometimes we don't realize that God cares about the small things because we are so intent on God moving in the big things that we miss out on some of the great things that God does in our life day by day. The other thing you got to see when you take a look at this particular moment is the significance of a wedding. Because if you take a look at the word of God and the comparisons of the church, we are known as the bride of Christ. In Revelation, you talk about the wedding supper of the Lamb. And all of the festivities which will be taking place and the fact that there will be wine which happens there. There's something significant about wine. As we get further on into the New Testament, we realize that, that wine, wine is symbolic of the blood of Jesus and the redemption of our souls. But also it was reminiscent and it was representative at this particular time of joy. It represented joy. If you read Psalm 104 verse 15, it says, Wine gladdens the human heart. And there's something about the symbolism of the bride and the groom and God and his church. And an old system that was kind of focused on keeping the law to something that was filled with complete joy. And that there's a spiritual significance to the weddings, but the fact that with God, joy is a priority. And, and folks, I look at this and I begin to ask myself, have we lost the priority of joy? But the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And there's something there, and it shows the compassion of Jesus. It becomes the central theme of our lives if you love Jesus. So these are some of the things you think about when you think of the moment. But what about Mary? Now, it doesn't even say Mary. Did you notice that? It says the mother of Jesus. But you can tell that it's Jesus' mother simply because she will infer things. 
Did you realize that? Mothers will infer things. Sometimes mothers will not tell you what to do. They'll just tell you what the situation is like. Spouses can be that way too. I'll just say that. At risk of being in trouble. Hey, you know, grass is pretty long. Not telling me to cut the lawn. She's just inferring. The grass is pretty long. The garbage is flowing over. Hey, I can't see your face because of all that hair. Now, that's not said to me, folks. I'm sorry. (laughs) I keep tripping over your underwear. Okay, maybe that's a little too much information. (laughs) But mothers somehow have a way of not saying that they want you to do something. They just explain what the situation is and allow you to draw the conclusion. Isn't that true? They run out of wine. And Jesus' response is this. Woman, what do I have to do with you? You think that almost sounds rude at that particular time. And the fact was this, that it wasn't rude at this particular time, through the language that it talks about. It would be this. It would be something like, ma'am, my lady, something to that effect. So it, it wasn't something which was rude, but it also was not something that was intimate. Why is that? Well, at this particular time, the course of Jesus' life had changed. He was now taking on the focus of his ministry as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And so he says, the relationship with us has changed somewhat. That now I am the Savior of the world, and so now I cannot be focusing on the things that you want me to focus on. The actual terminology, he says, is what do we have in common? And so what he is basically saying is, I can't be doing all the things that you are wanting me to do. I have to do what the Father wants me to do. You see, and that's kind of the showing in the relationship with Mary. And Scripture does not go on to say anything else about Mary in terms of things that she said. These are the last words that we hear her say. And the last words that she says is this. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Isn't that incredible? They don't uplift her. There's nothing else in scriptures talked about the fact that she was any special, more special than anything, anyone else. They don't deify her in any way. As a matter of fact, if you take a look at the song of Mary, she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Well, if you're a deity, if you are God, you don't need a Savior. And so she kind of goes out of the focus of Scripture because she was an instrument used by the Lord. And her, her last bit of information to us is this. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. But think of this for a second, if you could. And I'm hoping this somehow opens a few things to you. It was not easy for Mary if you stop and consider it. Throughout her whole life, the last 33 years of her life, she sat under a cloud which said, you had a child out of wedlock. Well, you know, no, it wasn't me. It was God. Well, how many people would believe that? And the child grows up, as far as we know, as no special individual, no other things which are happening and taking place. And so she is left with this black cloud which has been over her. And not only that, she has to live with that in the, in the midst of all of life's troubles with everybody knowing what's going on. So this was probably a time of anticipation for her. She knew that Jesus was the Son of God. 
But she was waiting for that time where it would all of a sudden be shown. And when it was, it would have been a time of vindication for her. I don't know if she would have actually said it. But once that water was turned into wine, you could almost hear her say, See, I told you. I told you. For 33 years, you didn't believe me. Do you believe me now? Probably not, knowing her character. But inside, it would have been a vindication. It would have been a confirmation that everything that she went through, every hardship that she had faced was worth it all because it was the Son of God. You know, you, you take a look at the life of Mary. It wasn't easy. We don't hear of Joseph's name. Why is that? Because he's probably dead. We also realize if you take a look in the book of Mark that he had four brothers, two sisters. So seven kids in the family that we know of. And with Joseph dying, she had to somehow get her way through life as a single mom in that culture. And you know, we read that scripture, it says everything, everything good happens to those who love Jesus and are called according to his service, right? According to, well, no, that's not what it says. It says all things work to good for those who are called of God. And so we see that this is an incredible woman in an incredible time fulfilling something which is absolutely wonderful. And so all of a sudden we are forced to take a look at the miracle. Have you ever considered this miracle? Like this is, this is kind of an amazing thing. But there are some instances here that, and things that I want you to kind of point out in this miracle that might kind of clarify things a little bit to you. You notice that the pots that they used were stone pots used for purification purposes. Now, they were not made out of clay. They were not made out of ceramic because that would not have done for anything having to do with purification purposes. It had to be something like a natural stone. And each of them had 20 to 30 gallons in them. Like that's like if you multiply that by six, that's in between 120 and 180 gallons. Filled to the brim. Someone had told me, they did the, the calculations, that it was probably about 900 bottles of wine. It's a lot of wine. It not only lasted them the duration of the wedding, but they probably could have sold the wine and, and, and profited a great deal. But there's something significant about the fact that it was filled in vessels that had to do with purification. That it represented the purification of the outside of the individual. But when it had turned into wine, it represented the redemption of us that when they drank it, it purified not only the outside, but a complete purification which happens and takes place. Incredible if you stop and consider the symbolism that is happening at this particular time. But there's some other things to note. Now Mary says to these guys, and I don't know how many servants there were, do whatever he says. And the first thing he says is, fill up those six jars. Okay, let me just get the hose, I'll turn it on there, and we'll just kind of wait around and talk while we fill these things up. That wasn't the case. They didn't have hoses. Well, I don't know if they did. Not like we're thinking with the taps and stuff like that on it. They had to go to a well, take a bucket. They had to work. They had to do everything. Why couldn't Jesus have just said, biddy boom They're filled right up. It required effort. It required faith. It required during the moment sometimes them saying, 
what are we doing? I have no idea, no clue what is taking place. Not only that, Jesus made it to be confirmed by the master of the ceremonies or whatever it is, the person who had controlled the wedding. He didn't know that it was a miracle, but he had it confirmed. But there's something about what happened at that particular miracle that has something to do with us and our soul. Used to be that you were under an old covenant, but I am coming to bring a new covenant which has life and fullness and completeness. Hallelujah. And the last one, the last portion talks about the man. And this is important. It says in John chapter 12, verses 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And you say, well, this doesn't really have a whole lot to do, but it does. There were two major things that were happening at this time of this verse. The first was this. During the writing of, of the time when John was writing this particular apostle, there were coming across a number of false prophets, imposters, people who said that they were apostles. At that particular time, the apostles, everything that they had said were written down and seen as the word of God. But there were also people who were imposters, imposters and, and they had these thoughts that they thought were wonderful. And in order for them to get any kind of respect, they would push these things as they were actually apostles themselves. One thing that happened uh, a couple of, uh, one or two centuries into church history was a, a thing called the Gospel of St. Thomas. In the Gospel of St. Thomas, there's stories of Jesus as a child and how he, to something to the fact he, he, he turned a child into a bird and felt bad and turned them back into him. Something along those lines. There's these stories. And, and these were beginning to circulate at this particular, particular time. We still face this today. There's still those. Now, those people who had, those people had these documents in place, there was a thing called the pseudepigrapha, which basically was, was uh, imposters. These were, these were writings that were said to be by apostles, but were actually written by people who weren't. They're false. And many times, even now, if you, if you were to go into Brandon University, they will talk to you, have you heard about the Gospel of St. Thomas? Well, John writes this because he says this. This was the first miracle. In case you guys were wondering, this was the first miracle that had taken place. And he wanted to confirm that. The other thing is this. When this happened, it solidified things for the disciples. It was something that had taken place that was so pronounced and so profound that it solidified the faith of those who were going to later on in life die for him. And you know what I found? That there are times when God has to solidify things for me. And there will be experiences and there will be times where you will hang your faith on that moment where God truly moved in your life. And I believe that we need those times. But it was certainly a time for them. And John was basically saying, that was the time that I knew that he was the son of God for sure. And so you're left with all these things that are in this, these, these 12 verses of scripture. And what does it mean to me today? Well, let me, let me suggest this to you. Moses, his first miracle in the deliverance of Israel was this, was to turn 
water into blood, which represented death and misery. Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine, which represented joy to the full. You want to know what one of the most amazing lines of this passage is this? Is when they take the wine to the head of the wedding and he says, you have saved the best to last. And you know what? That's what God does. If you're listening online or if you're here in person, let me just make this statement to you and I'm hoping that, that it will impact you. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, if you're listening and you don't know Jesus, let me just tell you that this life is the best you will ever experience. And if you are here and you do know Jesus, and if you love Jesus with all of your heart, this life is the worst that you will ever experience. That something happens when Jesus comes in that eclipses the stuff that has happened in the past. And not only that, it goes on forever. Here, here is my conviction. And my question to you. And I'm hoping that perhaps it sticks with you. After you leave the service today, or on the way home, or during the week while you're working, ask yourself this question. Are you running out of wine? Or have you run out of wine? I was serving God so well, something has happened. And I used to have joy. I used to have fullness. I used to have all this stuff. And for some reason, I'm just kind of grinning and bearing it. And every time I come to church, I have the smile on my face. But there is a level of joy that I am somehow missing in my life. And I'm not too sure what has happened in your life or maybe you've just kind of gone through these last couple of years trying to figure things out and you kind of seem like you're on some kind of a journey. But one thing you realize is that the joy that you had before somehow seems to have left you or has run out. I'll say this. I believe that we serve a God it wants to bring joy. I'm not saying that you can't feel bad, and I think that it is okay to not be okay at times for sure. But I don't think that God wants us to camp there. I think what he wants is for you to experience joy to the full. Amen? So God, I pray, as we look at all of these things that are involved in this wonderful miracle where you reveal that you are God, and that there is an old covenant that is being replaced by one which brings us life to the full. I pray, God, that that will not just be a story in our life. I pray that that will be resident in our life. And that, Lord, you will begin again to restore joy, which is a priority of God in our life. That you will do something fabulous and something supernatural for those of us who have been wore down, for those of us who have been hanging on, for those of us somehow who are depleted of joy in our life, God. Restore it today, I pray, oh God, in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.